right. Well, good morning. And good morning to those of you who might be visiting with us today, whether you're on campus or watching online for the first time. Uh, we are so glad to have you with us, and we would love to know uh, who you are. You can text the word CONNECT to 850-600-6779, the number that's on the screen, and one of us will follow up with you this week. We'd be happy to answer any questions you might have about our church and, and help you learn what it means to get more involved in the life of our church. Uh, before we get started in the Word this morning, I just want to bring uh, two opportunities to serve uh, in our church and community uh, to your attention. Uh, one uh, is what Pastor Michael talked about last week. He shared uh, the need we have for in our children's ministry beginning in August. And praise God that several uh, people uh, have responded and reached out about getting more involved in the life of our children's ministry. Uh, but God has blessed us with a lot of uh, kids, fifth grade and below. And uh, we believe that number is going to continue to increase. And so there is a big need uh, for people to serve on Sunday mornings uh, Really, uh, we need people who serve weekly, but also uh, bi-weekly volunteers as well. Uh, so you can text the word serve uh, to that same number, and uh, Lucas or Beth will follow up with you. You can stop by the boat if you have questions. Uh, I just want to say we're all in there. My wife serves every week. I'm going to be serving on a rotational basis on Wednesday night as well, because we just praise God for this incredible opportunity that we have. One thing we're doing is creating more and more groups that meet on uh, on Wednesday nights or other times of the week so that uh, we can meet that need on Sunday morning and allow you to still be in worship, uh, serve, and then be uh, a part of a group as well. So continue to pray for that and continue to be the answer to the prayer. Uh, as you can be. Also, next Sunday, we have a July 4th celebration. Uh, we have an incredible view of the fireworks, and so uh, we leverage that by inviting our community to join us. Uh, we anticipate about a 1,000 people being here with us, and so there's need uh, to uh, help with crafts and activities, uh, to help distribute food, and a need for setup. So next Sunday, uh, after the 11 o'clock uh, service, uh, I'm gonna change clothes. They're gonna feed us. I think, actually I know because I just said it, so now they have to feed us. They're gonna feed us and then we're gonna get to work setting up and then I'll go home, shower and come back with my family that night. So that's a great opportunity for some who wanna come that night and hang out with the family but can uh, help set up. So that's next Sunday. You can go to our website, churchonbayshore.org and go to the events page and find out more about how you can uh, serve next Sunday. All right, well, before we get started this morning, I have to say thank you to Steve Renna, our administrator who did a great job last week. And I told a lot of people, when the business guy can preach, you're in a pretty great church. So uh, I'm so thankful for the job he did. And we continue on uh, in the gospel of Mark and in our series, He is Greater Than Religion, by talking about eternal sin today. Now that's an attention grabber. The idea of eternal sin. So go ahead and find your place in Mark's gospel, chapter three. We're gonna begin reading in verse 20. And as you find your place in Mark's gospel, I want us to think about a contrast. And that contrast is the contrast between skepticism and cynicism. Skepticism is a questioning attitude or doubt towards truth claims. Phyru was a Greek philosopher during the rise of Hellenism, and he is typically believed to be the father of skepticism as he began to question what was commonly held to be true. Now, 
Granted, I think that there was probably skeptics before uh, Firu and Hellenism. I'm pretty sure there were people who heard that your nose running meant demons were escaping and were like, I don't know if that's true. Uh, I'm sure that there were people who heard a king say when he issued his decrees, well, God told me this, who were like... Yeah, I don't know about that. And I, and I have to believe, even within our own faith, that whenever uh, God told Abraham to circumcise adult males, that some of them were like, are you sure that God uh, told you that? So skepticism is not a bad thing. We need skeptics. I, I'll tell you, I am a skeptic. I don't know if you know this is okay for me to say, but when we first started hearing about COVID, I was like... No, no, there's no way. What is all this? This doesn't make any sense. Some of you are still completely there. But uh, you know, that's where I was. I, I'm skeptical when I hear almost anything from the news. I mean, any, any news, Fox, CNN, whatever. There's no political leaning there or bias for me. I'm, I'm skeptical of a lot of what I hear. And even, especially in my early days of reading the Bible, I would read things and be like, really? How can this be? How can we reconcile this? How could this have happened? And so, we need skeptics. Cynicism, however, is when a person believes that the root of all actions is selfishness and that ultimately there is no hope for humanity. We can trace the origin of cynicism to a Greek group who saw no value in wealth, pursuit, or fame and decided that the goal then was to live a virtuous life. But a guy named Diogenes came along and he followed this to its end, saying there was no point in anything, including virtue. And so a skeptic is well hesitant based on their experiences and based on their lack of knowledge, and a cynic is hardened by their experience and their lack of knowledge. Now, why am I talking about this? Well, the reason that I'm bringing this up is because a cynic is an identity that can lead you to hell. Our passage shows us what I am talking about. And so let's read through it and talk about some things and then come back and point out some things that it makes clear to the skeptic, the cynic, and the like. Mark chapter three, verse 20 says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. So Jesus and his disciples go back home. We're not really sure where. It's probably Simon and Andrew's house in Capernaum, again, where they had been. And there's so many people around them that they can't even eat. It's literally translated that they couldn't eat bread. They were apparently trying to eat, and it was just so overwhelming how many people were around him. The crowd had built because of the things Jesus was doing and the things Jesus was teaching. Well, this is in the place that Jesus had lived and set up his base, and so his family is nearby. And verse 21 tells us, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, this word that is translated family is actually the expression, those who were with him, the King James Version translates this as friends. I like the New American Standard Bible, which says his own people heard it. But it's commonly translated or, or interpreted to be family because the interaction in the following verses is with his family. And we'll cover that next week. But this group of people who is likely his family, certainly people who were close to him, wanted to seize him. 
They wanted to get him out. They wanted to get him away because they were saying that Jesus was out of his mind. They were saying that he had lost his mind. He had lost his senses. Now, what are they saying here? Well, Eugene Peterson in the message says that they were saying that he, Jesus, was believing his own press. I think that they were thinking very humanly here. Jesus had built this crowd, and so they naturally assumed that Jesus was starting to think a lot of himself. And in their opinion, maybe more than he should of himself. I remember when I was 19 and I became a supervisor for this mortgage company I was working for, and my manager told me, hey, here are your business cards. You need to hand them out to people so they can contact you. And so I walked around handing this business, these business cards out, and one of the guys who was about twice my age said, oh, look at you, Mr. Fancy Pants, handing out your business cards. And after that, I thought, I am kind of Mr. Fancy Pants with my business cards. I remember a friend of mine who was a pastor we both planted a church around the same time, and his church was running about 100 people or so, and my church, you know, it was, it was bigger than that, but it didn't matter. And, and I, I texted him about something, and he said, hey, can you check with my people about that? Your people? Yeah, my team, they'll get back, they handle that now. A, dude, I know you. I've seen you do some stupid stuff. Secondly, you're not that big of a deal. And so we've all experienced those people who they kind of, you know, begin to think they're a big deal or just because of their success, we begin to think and assume that they think they're a big deal. Jesus had built a pretty big crowd already. I mean, he was making a splash because of the things he was teaching and the things he was doing. So there were different responses to Jesus. His disciples began to say, because how close they were with him, this is the son of God. And the crowd was amazed by him. They didn't necessarily believe in him, but they were amazed and saw the power that he had and the authority with which he taught. His family were a little more skeptical, which makes sense. You know how hard it is to convince your family of something. I mean, if one of my children are, are told by a teacher or something they're smart, their siblings don't even believe that. They're like, show me your grades. I don't believe you're smart. So imagine if they were saying they're the son of God, right? They were, they were teaching, Jesus was teaching the things he was teaching. That's one of the great proofs, the great evidences of the resurrection. Because James, the half-brother of Jesus, was like, my brother is not God. And then Jesus rose from the grave and something changed. And of course, not only is there the family and the crowd and, and the disciples, but there's always the religious folk. There's the scribes and the Pharisees and their reaction is a little harsher towards Jesus and we see it in verse 22 it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons he cast out the demons these are the scribes the one who ones who came down from Jerusalem that's not only literal but that's figurative they came down upon the people from Jerusalem and they make the accusation here which is stronger than Jesus being caught up in his own press, but that he is possessed by Beelzebul. Literally, they say he has Beelzebul. Now, Beel comes from the Canaanite god Baal, and Beelzebul means Baal the prince. Now, Beelzebub, which you'll see in the Bible, is the Israelites mocking of this phrase meaning lord of the flies this is one of the many terms that became synonymous with 
the prince of demons. And what they are saying is the reason Jesus is able to cast out demons is because he's associated with or has the power of the prince of demons. This is in response to a healing that in Mark's conciseness here, he doesn't mention, but Matthew mentions it in his gospel. Matthew chapter 12, verse 22 through 24 says, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him so the man, that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Son of David is a messianic term to hear this about Jesus, who wasn't one of them, who wasn't fitting the mold of what they said the son of David would be, would anger the Pharisees and scribes. And the Pharisees, note, do not deny the power that Jesus is displaying, but they deny the source of the power that Jesus is displaying. This is an easy way to deny him as the son of David, to deny him as the Messiah. And they were looking for a way, Luke tells us in his gospel, that Others were seeking to test him and kept seeking a sign from him. They were trying to trap him. This is not the first time they would make an accusation like this about Jesus, and it wouldn't be the last time that they would make an accusation about Jesus like this. They were not saying the same things that the family was saying. They weren't simply confused about who Jesus was. And there's a difference between Jesus' interaction with his family and Jesus' interaction with these Pharisees and scribes. And Mark says in verse 23 that he, Jesus, called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? Mark Matthew tells us Jesus knew their thoughts. He goes on, if a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. Now, when we hear this, this probably is familiar to us, not because of the Bible, but because of Abraham Lincoln. This is what Abraham famously said during the time of the Civil War. And, and there's a lot of good in what Abraham Lincoln said and in our connection to that, and our value in that. I mean, he's right. A country cannot stand if it's divided, I think many who love and want to see the, the, the advancement of our country and the preservation of our country, that's a concern that they have today. They see division that's increasing in our country, and it concerns them for the longevity of this country. We see this happen within the church. I don't know if you read the news about what's happening in church, but over the past several years, United Methodist Church, the denomination, is, is divided over the issue of homosexuality and, and homosexual clergy, and, and there's a split that is, is coming, a division that is happening in the United Methodist Church, and there's even concern over issues like this, not to that extent, but over liberalism and Christian nationalism in the Southern Baptist Convention, and that the Southern Baptist Convention might experience a schism because of these issues that are rising up and the division that is taking place. And you see this happen in churches and you see this happen in houses and families. And so what Abraham Lincoln was saying is indeed accurate and is something we should take heed to. But simply thinking about this passage in light of what Lincoln said is not sufficient for understanding what Jesus was saying. 
it misses something very important. The point of Jesus saying this was not to be united. The point of Jesus saying this is what he's doing and who he is. And you can have unity in a country or in a church or a denomination or a family without God and be unified and greatly at error. What Jesus is saying here is not simply that. He's saying to the Pharisees and the scribes, what you are saying does not make sense. He says, why would Satan cast out Satan? That doesn't make sense. And he goes on to say in verse 27, but no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Jesus is explaining what is happening. He is explaining what he is doing and the power by which he is doing it. What Jesus is saying is that Satan, the prince of demons, is coming to an end because there is one who is stronger than him. There is one who has more authority than him. And so we need to stop here and make something clear. The first thing that we need to make clear today from this text is this. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. If you don't believe that Jesus wins, then you don't know Jesus. The story of the Bible is that the promised offspring will have his heel bruised, but he will crush the head of the serpent. In the life of Jesus, we see that sickness, that demons, that even the wind and the waves and even death are subject to the authority of Jesus. The New Testament tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus wins. But for those who do not know him, they are confused by him. And they might be tempted to make accusations like his authority comes from the prince of demons. It is what gives him his power. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, verse 27, if I cast out demons by visible, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Now, Jesus is many great things, but one thing you learn about Jesus if you read through the Gospels is that Jesus is very smart. Jesus is very wise. And Jesus says, okay, so if you're saying the reason that I can perform an exorcism is because I have the power of the prince of demons, then what about your exorcisms? Now, he might be saying this because we know that many people had started performing fake exorcisms. They were doing this so that they could seem to be powerful, and maybe that was the real issue. The Pharisees and the scribes were not actually able to really cast out demons, so for somebody to really have that kind of power threaten them, 
But if they were really doing this, and they were saying they were really doing this, and Jesus was doing it by the power of the prince of demons, then what did that mean about their power? Wouldn't that likely conclude that it was also satanic? His point here is that your logic, your accusation in your logic, excuse me, your logic in your accusation is faulty. And there is a reason that they have faulty logic here. And this brings us to the second thing that this text shows us that we need to make clear today, and that's this. The problem is not doubt. The problem is pride. The problem in the Pharisees and the scribes is not doubt. It's pride. And the greatest issue that we face today in this room watching online in our living room or in our car, hopefully not driving and doing that, but you know, is not doubt. It's pride. The problem is not doubt. In James's letter to the churches, he says that when we ask God of something, we must believe and not doubt. And that's commonly misunderstood, saying we can't have any doubts about God coming through, but that's really not what it's saying. In fact, if you go on to read, he says that you shouldn't be a double-minded man for you're unstable in your ways. Doubt is actually lacking sincerity is what that Greek word means. And it's so what, what James is saying is if you're asking God, you should really believe that God is who he says he is. Not that you have a hard time believing God's gonna do what he says he's gonna do and all that because you're human, but that you should really be a believer in God. He's, he's talking about sincerity. In fact, in Jude's letter, he says to have mercy on those who doubt. Some of you, because of the things that you've experienced in your life, you occasionally or maybe frequently doubt God's goodness. Some of you, because of the struggles that you are going through or that you've experienced doubt, can God really change me? Some of you, because of the things you've been taught or haven't been taught, read things in the Bible and, and occasionally or frequently think, can this really be true? And the problem is not doubt. God will take a willing, humble person who struggles with doubts on a lifelong journey of reducing our doubts in light of his goodness. That's really what the Christian journey is. That's really what the Christian walk is. Those doubts are not the problem. And church, this needs to be a place, this needs to be a people where it's okay to verbalize our doubts, where it's okay to admit our struggles, where it's okay to read the Bible and say, are we sure? This needs to be a place where we walk with people. The Bible tells us where to carry each other's burdens. And sometimes those doubts come from a place of experience and struggle and hardship. And we walk with each other in those things. Because the greatest issue, the greatest problem is not doubt. It is pride. And for the Pharisees, Jesus could not be more powerful than them. And that's really the root of what causes people not to submit to Jesus. 
That's the root of the problems with what is called the sexual revolution. That we would say, this is who I am, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to be autonomous, even if God himself tells me I shouldn't. This is ultimately the reason that 90% of all churches don't have people that give generously to God. Because we want to do what we want with our money. This is the reason that people won't be all in for Jesus. Because of the thing you love doing. Or the thing you love about yourself that you say, I won't give that up for Jesus. This is the reason for hypocrisy because you have people with big egos who become religious people with big egos being validated by their adherence to whatever it is they say is their religion. And our bias for power and authority and autonomy dismisses our logic about who Jesus is, causing us not to see him, causing us not to trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, but causing us to constantly follow our heart and what we think is right. And we reduce Jesus from the position of Lord, saying things like, he's my savior, but not my Lord, or there's such a thing as him being a savior, but not Lord, And non-Christians reducing him to the position of good teacher or good example or one of many. But listen, the implications here are huge. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, but if it is by the spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Here's what he's saying. He's saying if, if God is the one doing this, then the kingdom is here. And that was the message of Jesus As we began in the Gospel of Mark a few months ago, we saw that the message of of Jesus was this, Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So to reject Jesus' work, to reject Jesus' authority, is to reject the kingdom of God. It's to not place our citizenship in the eternal kingdom of God, but to place it on earth, which will perish. And look as we read on in Mark what Jesus says. Verse 28, truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter, But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. But they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So at my house, we have this little chihuahua mix thing. And so his ears perk up when something out of the ordinary takes place and the hair on the back of his neck, stands up. And when you read anything in the Bible, you should pay attention. But when you hear the word eternal and sin combined by Jesus, you should really be alert to what is being said here. Jesus says that all 
sins will be forgiven the children of man, whatever blasphemies they utter. The word blasphemy means to, to puncture or to strike through. It was, it was an affront on the character of God. In the Old Testament, blasphemies could be punishable by death. You would be cut off from God's people according to the Old Testament. And the third very clear thing this text shows us is that all sins and blasphemies against God will be forgiven. All sins and blasphemies against God will be forgiven. Now, while there are other things that could qualify as blasphemy, just to highlight a few of the things that were considered blasphemy was to curse God's name for what he does. So to experience something God does or doesn't do and to curse his name. Another blasphemy would be to just completely disrespect his commandments and his laws given to us. Or to be someone who says you believe in God, but then to live as a fool in your actions and blaspheme God's name and bring shame on God's name by the way you live. Or to worship idols along with God. So not believing God is the only God. These were all things that are considered blasphemy. And Jesus says they can all be forgiven. You can curse God's name for what he does and be forgiven. You can disrespect his commandments that were given to you out of love and mercy and experience the love and mercy of God in that. You can be someone who claims to be following him, bringing shame upon his name by the way you live and be forgiven by God. You can worship idols, not thinking God is sufficient and be forgiven by God. But Jesus says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness. Now, this phrase has puzzled people for years. There's been debate about this phrase for years because of just bad Bible reading. I've heard people say this means if somebody's speaking in tongues or slain in the Spirit or what, laughing in the Spirit and you say that's not of God or you don't believe that, that that's blasphemy against the Spirit. But with all respect to people who believe that, they are completely wrong. What this text tells us is the reason. It says, look at verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. And then Jesus says why he said, or Mark says why he's saying this. For they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The Pharisees were saying the spirit by which Jesus does the work he does isn't of God. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not believing that it is the Spirit of God that's doing the work that he is doing in Jesus. That's the eternal sin. The last thing I want us to be clear about here today is this. If you don't believe that Jesus changes everything, you don't change. If you don't believe that Jesus changes everything, you don't change. If you don't think that Jesus can take a man possessed with a demon and give him healing, then how can he change you? This is why the Pharisees struggled with grasping all of this, because they didn't see the need for change. They didn't see the need for this kind of power from God. And that's why Jesus said to him, said to them what he said to them when they wondered why he spent time with tax collectors and sinners, which we looked at a few weeks ago. In Mark 2, 17, it says Jesus heard it. He heard the criticisms of the Pharisees, and he said to them, those 
who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, Jesus isn't saying that there are those who are well and don't need a physician. He's saying there are those who think they are well. They think they are righteous. So they didn't get the need for this kind of power that the Holy Spirit has to transform lives. They only were looking for power that would say, yeah, you're right, keep on trucking. Yeah, you're right, keep living the way you live. Keep following the things you live. And that's the appeal of a lot of religion today, whether it's some rigid religion or it's this modern believe in yourself religion that just affirms you and who you are and what you want in life. Because the kind of power that Jesus was showing, if it was from God, ultimately means that we need to be delivered. It means that there is something that needs to be transformed about us. There is something that needs to be healed about us. And many don't see that. And so they reject this. I was in a conversation with somebody not too long ago who brought a lot of hurt on a lot of people, including me. I said, I just want you to know that I forgive you for everything. And they said, yeah, I mean, a lot of people did a lot of things. And, um, you know, we all contributed to it. Dude, you are not aware of how you've lived your life and the things you've done. Because not only do you need forgiveness from me and other people, you need forgiveness from God. But this person wasn't in a position to really say, I've got to humble myself and realize maybe a lot of how I'm doing and living is wrong. And the Pharisees weren't in a place where they would say, hey, maybe we've gotten a lot of things wrong. And when Jesus began to change people, it threatened them and they opposed it. And Matthew says that Jesus said in chapter 12, verse 30, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. What Jesus is saying here is he's saying that whoever doesn't draw near to me runs in fear. Now, why would people run in fear from Jesus? Because of the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the non-religious would see this and say, I don't want to give up autonomy. I don't want to give up control. And so many, and maybe this is you, you're not even willing to even look and see Why is the world shaped so much by Jesus? Why has he had such an influence he's had? Because you don't even want to begin to entertain the idea that maybe there's something about you that needs to change on this kind of scale. But I would also say there are many who are religious who even claim the name of Jesus who are not worshiping Jesus for who he is, but somebody they've made him to be that exists to serve the life they want to live. And so I just want to ask you this question. Do you want Jesus to win? Do you want Jesus to win? When it comes to money, Do you want Jesus to win? Or do you have a definition of the win and you won't give that up for Jesus? 
when it comes to your marriage, do you want Jesus to win? Or do you have something you expect out of a spouse? And you're not willing to give up those expectations for Jesus. When it comes to your children, do you want Jesus to win or do you have a goal for their life? And you're not willing to submit those goals to the lordship of Jesus. When it comes to church, do you want Jesus to win? Or do you have what you want church to be? And it needs to serve that and not him. And when it comes to your happiness, do you want Jesus to win? Or are there things on your list that have to happen? And Jesus, he can help you with that or you're not interested. And perhaps the most revealing aspect of this is when it comes to eternity. Do you want Jesus to win? Do you want the glory of Jesus? Or do you have things that you expect for heaven to be? And if they're not that, it's not heaven to you. Do you want Jesus to win? As we go on in the gospel of Mark, we will see the transforming power of the gospel. The gospel transforms us. It changes us. I read this quote probably once a year, and so it's a do. This quote by C.S. Lewis about the transformation that takes place in the life of a believer. And here's what he says. Imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. And you knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building a quite different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. This is what Jesus does. This is what the Spirit of God does. He doesn't just say, okay, here is the money you want. He transforms our views of money and he transforms us to being someone who wants to be blessed as someone who views being the blessing as what it means to be blessed. He doesn't just give us a spouse that completes us or make our spouse into someone who compliments us. He changes our view of marriage into a deeply meaningful expression of the love of Christ and the church, causing you to have joy even in the sacrifice and sanctification that this intimate of a relationship can bring. Jesus doesn't just give you kids that are healthy and successful and wise. He puts you in step with him as a parent and partners with you in him raising your children to know their heavenly father. 
He doesn't just give you the things that make you happy or take away things that cause you sadness. He gives you deep abiding joy in him regardless of your circumstances. And he doesn't only save you from the plight of hell. He gives you the immeasurable riches of himself to enjoy for all of eternity. When Jesus comes into our life, he transforms our life. He does a work in us that is, is far more than we could ever think or imagine on our own. That's just the power and authority that Jesus has. And if you're here today because you've been taught or it's been modeled or you've experienced something that has caused you to deny or doubt this power, then as the hymn says, Jesus can melt the heart of stone and I hope that he will melt that heart this morning. And if for some reason today you think there's no way you can change, there's no way that God can do this through you, you doubt the things you see around you, that cynicism has got to go because that cynicism can be leading you to hell. And I'm not saying that there isn't problems in the church. I'm not saying there isn't problems in the world. I'm not saying there isn't problems in your family. But what I'm saying is that God is so much bigger than all of those problems. I'm not asking you to have it figured out. I'm not asking you to get rid of all your doubts. What I'm telling you is what Jesus said. If you have faith of a mustard seed, then he can do the work of the kingdom in your life. That's the power of Jesus. That's the power of his spirit. You are not asked to have a big faith in God. You are asked to have a little bit of faith in a big God. And he will transform you. So maybe today you're saying to him for the first time, here I am, Lord. I believe. I believe in you. I'm desperate for you. There's nothing more we would love to do than talk to you about that. You can come and see me at the end of the service or you can text the word believe to the number that's on the screen and one of us will follow up with you. And church, I would just ask you this. Do we want Jesus to win in our lives, in our homes, and in this church? Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the power of the gospel this message and what it can do in us and the reason that the gospel message has power is because it's the message about who you are it's a message about the power of the spirit of God that can be alive in us and so Lord may we examine our lives and we examine our goals let me examine our routines and may we just say, with humble hearts, we know that Jesus wins. And we want you to have victory in every area of our life. We pray these things in the name that is above every name, Jesus. Amen.